0: Hello and welcome back to the Europeans. This is post holiday Katie. Please enjoy my extremely chilled out demeanor because it definitely won't last. Now that I'm back at home in Paris and under curfew. Dominic Kramer, how are you doing?
1: I'm fine, thanks. But Did you do that thing that the Dutch King and Queen did where you went on holiday very controversially the day the lockdown started?
0: (laughs) To be fair, I didn't know the lockdown was coming when it was indeed announced that evening. And it was a bit awkward because we were staying in this very nice little village in uh, Brittany and I feel like they thought we were like Jeremy Parisians coming in to like infect the village. Awkward.
1: But was it lovely?
0: It was lovely. Yeah, I just... Clambered over the rocks in Brittany in northwest France for a few days, and um, ate a lot of seafood and generally had a lovely time. Having said that, it has been quite an extreme week. There's been some good stuff and bad stuff. I'm afraid I've got some bad news for you. Oh. You know that lovely prize that we won a couple of years ago, the Spinelli Prize. Yeah. And they gave us that big certificate in a frame. Yeah. <sighs> There's no easy way to tell you this, but um, it's covered in human excrement. Why? Because a sewage pipe burst in our basement and it got into all of this stuff that I was storing down there.
1: So Uh, (laughs) of my
0: stuff is covered with shit.
1: That's disgusting. But Uh. also, why was the certificate not on display?
0: You, I don't think, have seen it physically, but it was absolutely massive and it felt really boastful having it covering essentially half a wall in my very small Parisian apartment. Um, So I just kind of like awkwardly stashed it down there and now I regret that deeply.
1: That's dreadful. Did the experiment get through the glass of the frame?
0: No, so I could wipe it down but we'd all know where it had been. Don't really know what to do with it. How are you?
1: I'm fine. Uh, I I had been really crazy busy as I had been complaining about for a few weeks and now my schedule is looking rather empty again uh, once more (laughs) due to uh, our partial lockdown here in the Netherlands and... The uncertainty that that brings. But it has given me time to get really angry um, at a few things this week. Actually, mainly the thing I got really angry at was this bill that's coming up in the European Parliament that might make it illegal for vegan and vegetarian meat replacement companies to call their products vegan burgers or vegan sausages.
0: Oh, yeah. I vaguely saw you tweeting about this from the beach and then I put my phone away because I didn't care. (laughs) Tell me about it. What's going on?
1: So there's a law that is going to get a vote uh, sometime this week in the European Parliament that's supported by the meat lobby, who say that it's really confusing to customers if you call these things veggie burgers or vegan burgers or vegan cheese or yoghurt style, that that's really confusing. um, And therefore, they shouldn't be allowed to have any of those names. It's a kind of appropriation of meat what is going on why is this stupid legislation being prioritized and uh, apparently it has a chance of passing and it makes me very angry anyway let's calm down
0: just before we move on what are we supposed to call them if they're not called burgers
1: the suggestion is discs and tubes
0: veggie discs
1: veggie discs
0: delicious Good. I'm glad that our lawmakers are prioritising the things that matter.
1: Yeah, just when the EU is meant to be doing this farm-to-fork initiative, encouraging meat replacement and uh, organic food... Anyway, Anyway. we have a nice, calming episode coming up. We're going to be speaking to Alexander Drexel, long-time friend of the podcast. He's an EU interpreter and a self-professed language nerd. And that's why we wanted him to come on the show, uh, to talk to us about the weirdness that is EU English. Yes, the English language has morphed into having its own kind of Euro dialect due to the melange of all those foreign languages that come together in the European institutions. We're talking about it in part because news came out recently that the European Public Prosecutor's Office have announced that they're going to be becoming an English language only office. News that obviously ruffled some feathers, especially in France. So we'll be talking to Alexander about whether or not this is the best way to deal with the language challenges provided by our our multilingual continent or not. But first... Who's had a bad week, Katie? Katie?
0: This was, unfortunately, one of those weeks where there is sadly plenty to choose from in terms of why it's been a bad week. And in particular, here in France, it has been a terrible week with the murder of the teacher Samuel Paty. It feels like people have been really shaken up by it. But I actually wanted to talk about a different French story, which has maybe escaped attention in the midst of everything else that's been going on. Uh, I'm giving bad week to Nicolas Sarkozy, former president of France. What do you remember about him?
1: Uh, oh... Not that much. It was before I was that interested in European politics. Uh, Carla Bruni.
0: Yeah, married to the supermodel, Carla Bruni.
1: He kind of had a bit of the Tony Blair vibe about him.
0: Uh, And he was kind of perma yes, I guess. And sort of blingy. What else can we say about him? Conservative, really didn't like immigrants. Still really influential in French conservative politics, actually. Um, But one of the things you possibly didn't know about him is that he's been accused of secretly receiving... 50 million euros from Colonel Gaddafi, the late Libyan dictator.
1: Who Blair was also a friend of, yeah?
0: Maybe that's where you got the similarity (laughs) from. that's
1: where I got it.
0: Um, So cast your mind back to 2011. It is the Arab Spring. Protests have been spreading across the Middle East, including Libya. And now European leaders are calling for Gaddafi to go. And funnily enough, Sarkozy is one of the strongest voices calling for military action from the West in Libya. And at that point, Gaddafi's son says something weird. Uh, He comes out to international media and he basically says, well, if Sarkozy doesn't like us, then I think he should give all that money back. At which point everyone is like, what money? <laughs> and over the next few years, like these claims emerged that Sarkozy secretly accepted something like 50 million euros from Gaddafi to fund his first presidential campaign back in 2007. Now, I should say straight away that Sarkozy totally denies any wrongdoing. But what happened this week is that investigators formally placed him under investigation for criminal association, which basically means they think there's enough evidence for the investigation to move forward and maybe eventually go to trial. Um, And he's already been put under formal investigation for a bunch of other charges, like benefiting from embezzlement and illegal campaign financing. So this is yet another blow.
1: Is it illegal to get campaign financing from abroad in France like it is in America? Uh, Yes. And what's the evidence against Sarkozy?
0: Well this is the thing like there isn't really that much concrete evidence or at least like not anything that's being talked about publicly and this is the thing about Sarkozy and one of the reasons why this investigation has become so complicated and sprawling. It's just like nothing seems to stick to him you know so there's been this constant stream of news stories over recent years saying things like a person close to Sarkozy is being investigated over a suspicious payment that they received via a bank account in the Bahamas. Or literally things like a businessman claims that he delivered suitcases stuffed with cash to Sarkozy's campaign chief. It's things like that. But, like I say, I mean, Sarkozy says that everything he did in office was absolutely above board. And he said he was stupefied by this latest decision to put him formally under investigation. Uh, he put this statement on his Facebook page saying, If I was allowed, I would release the transcript of what I told the police, and then you'd all see how innocent I am. And yet he has found himself caught up in this incredibly tangly web of court cases since he left office, Um, along with the claim that the Libyans gave him millions for his first election campaign. There's also been claims that his second election campaign was illegally financed. And uh, yeah, I just think it's quite an astonishing number of court cases for the former president of one of the apparently most stable democracies in the world, supposedly, uh, to be involved in, and I think if he was a politician from the anglophone world, we'd all be glued to this story and like following it with popcorn. So I just wanted to give it a little bit of airtime today.
1: Sounds like a piling up of juicy scandals. I shouldn't enjoy it, but uh, we have to kill our kicks
0: somewhere today.
1: <laughs> it's a nice distraction from some other potential scandals on the other side of the Atlantic. Anyway, we're not talking about that.
0: What are we talking about? Who's had a good week?
1: Good week goes to the Swedish military because it looks like their parliament is going to vote to approve a 40% rise in military spending by 2025. Mm. It's a lot, but it doesn't come out of nowhere. Um, According to Forbes, they have been steadily increasing their spending since 2014, prompted by Russia's annexation of Crimea. But the rise in spending is pretty rapid. If this bid is approved, spending will be 85% higher in 2025 than it was in 2014.
0: Why are they doing this? I do have a bit of a hunch. Does it involve our friends to the east in Russia?
1: Yes, well done. Well guessed, Katie. (laughs) Thanks. Um, Yeah, well, following the Cold War, Sweden dramatically cut its military spending. I guess they thought, "Mm, we don't need any of those bombs and guns anymore, do we? But yeah, in the last 10 to 15 years, Russia has been more and more aggressive in places like Georgia and Ukraine and also in the Baltic Sea, which Sweden sits on. The Swedish defence minister put it by saying we have a situation where the Russian side is willing to use military means to achieve political goals. Based on that, we have a new geopolitical security situation to deal with.
0: So what is this money going to get spent on?
1: It's going to be spent on all the different parts of the military, um, which are going to be strengthened. They're getting a fifth submarine. They're getting lots of weapon upgrades, a third army brigade, and the forces will grow from 60,000 to 90,000. And actually, I just listened to an interview on Radio Sweden with a former head of the Swedish Defence University. I know how to have fun on a Monday evening. (laughs) And he said that the idea with this increase in spending isn't that Sweden would be able to beat Russia in an all-out war. That's kind of unrealistic. But the idea is that they would be able to defend themselves for up to three months whilst they wait for backup. Probably, hopefully from NATO, even though Sweden aren't actually members of NATO, which Uh, people might forget. Um, It may feel completely mad to imagine that Sweden could actually be under attack from Russia or another country. But the defence minister said an armed attack on Sweden cannot be ruled out. Russia have done a few things recently that have added up to a kind of worrying culmination of aggressive signals. For example, they there were two warships that entered Swedish waters uninvited last month and reports of Russian planes flying too close to Swedish aircrafts mm. and just generally violating Swedish airspace. Oh, and one thing I didn't mention earlier that's going to change is that conscription is going to be doubled I was kind of shocked to discover that Sweden had any conscription, to be honest, but it was restarted back in 2017, from which point 4,000 young men and women were selected each year to do 12 months military service. By 2025, this will be increased to 8,000, which will make up about 8% of the age cohort. It's quite a lot. It is, isn't it? Um, According to the Swedish government website, individual motivation, interest and will are considered as much as possible when they decide which poor 18-year-olds are going to have to go and learn how to be soldiers.
0: I'd be that person at the back of the queue (laughs) saying like, oh, please pick me. I'd love to do this.
1: Yeah, me too. I really hope that it is mainly teenagers who don't mind doing it too much. Um, And from what I understand, every 18-year-old gets a letter in the post with like a list of questions they have to respond to saying things like do you like being outside do you like working in groups do you love bombs that last one i made up um (laughs) uh, yeah but from that survey they then decide who to call up it also seems like you can object to the draft based on not wanting to bear arms but last year three young swedes did end up in jail for refusing to start or complete their military service oh wow yeah. So it's quite a serious thing. And actually, bear with me for a second, because I ended up falling into the European military conscription rabbit hole. And I couldn't believe how many European countries still have some sort of conscription. Um, most of the countries that still do it, do it in a very limited, selective way, like Sweden, Uh Places like Denmark, Norway, Estonia and Lithuania.
0: It's quite quite a theme going on there geographically.
1: Yeah, that's true. Um, but Finland, Cyprus and Greece all have compulsory military service for all men of a certain age. And of course, Russia, which requires every young man to spend a year in military service. Um, I don't know what I would have done if I'd grown up in a country like that. I guess I could have played in a military band.
0: That's true. There's many ways to serve your country, Dominic.
1: There are. I was just imagining... You serving your country wearing those kangaroo boots. Um, (laughs) I thought they'd be like a great weapon. You'd have great agility.
0: Springing into action with a machine gun in each hand.
1: Anyway, I meant to be speaking about Swedish defence spending um, and that bill has to pass Parliament first. So maybe it's a bit premature to be giving the Swedish military good week. But from what I've read, it seems very likely that the bill will pass as it is being brought forward by the Social Democratic and Green Minority Government and has the support of the opposition centre and liberal parties. So, good week, Swedish military.
0: We've got some lovely new supporters to thank for keeping this podcast running. Tonhus, and not one but two former guests of this podcast, Deborah Cole and Emily Shorthais, as if you hadn't already done enough by... Lending us your lovely voices.
1: They're growing. Our uh, Ex-guests becoming patrons. There are now like five of them. They've definitely all felt peer pressured by each other to yeah. give
0: us money. Thanks, guys. It's, uh, it's incredibly nice of you. Um, it might be obvious by now, but this podcast is not backed by a massive media organisation. It is literally recorded in my bedroom and under Dominic's stairs every week. And we really don't get to pay ourselves very much for researching and editing it. So if you would like to chip in as little as two euros or dollars or pounds a month, you can do so at patreon.com forward slash Europeans podcast. Oh, and the other thing I wanted to say is that I don't know if this is just because it was my birthday last week, but I feel like we got a disproportionate number of really nice messages this week from people just saying how much they love the show.
1: Yeah, it was so nice. And it actually serves as a really nice alternative. If you're not able to give us money, please tweet about us. (laughs) You may have also noticed we don't have a professional marketing team behind this podcast.
0: Speaking of Patreon, something that came up in our Patreon Facebook group recently was people saying that they'd be interested in hearing about how languages work in Europe, and in particular, how our own mother tongue, English, has kind of morphed into a new dialect because so many Europeans speak it as a second language to each other in Brussels and beyond. As Dominic said, some people think we're actually seeing a new form of English emerge. And as he said at the beginning of the show, um, another very interesting development on the linguistic front that caught our eye recently is that the new EU prosecutor's office that's gonna open in November is going to have English only as its working language, much to the annoyance of some French diplomats who, as we know, are very protective of uh, Europe as a sort of multilingual place to work. We knew exactly who the right person to talk about all of this stuff was. Alexander Dressel is a conference interpreter in the Brussels bubble. He works at the European Commission, He is also an amazing supporter of this podcast and podcasts himself about all things linguistic. So we gave him a ring in the belly of the EU beast, among other things, to get a lesson in how to speak EU English. This idea of having an EU prosecutor's office that only works in English... Has that been causing a stir in Brussels in general or is it really just like a few French people who are cross about it?
2: I think so far the only... Place where I've come across it was on Twitter. So a uh, usual Twitter feud about um, which languages languages should be used by the European institutions uh, It hasn't come up in any of the other linguistic circles, as it were. But that might be due to the C thing that's going on at the moment. So as you know, Brussels in a, is in a particularly bad place. So maybe it's because of that that it's uh, mm. it has gotten a bit of short shrift. But uh, uh, yeah, but interpreters have been talking about it a little bit, of course. And what do you think about the decision? Do you agree that with their
1: view that one language is necessary to work efficiently and effectively?
2: Well, it's it's kind of a loaded question because uh, I think at first glance, I mean, a lot of people will think, yeah, it's just easier if we all speak English. But I think there are some disadvantages to that as well. Then uh, then again, of course, you know, working with interpreters also has some sort of logistical consequences. So you have to have booths in place, for example, uh, you have to prepare the meetings a little bit more, maybe you have to send documents to the interpreters so they can prepare. So it's not uh, obvious, but I think it's also important as a symbol I don't mean to say that it's just a token, but I think it's important for European institutions to work with different languages to make sure that you know people are on board, that Europeans are on board. I think that's that's important.
0: I have previously worked in offices where people speak maybe three languages or four. I cannot imagine working in a workplace with 24 official languages, and I guess quite a few others that get used. Like, How do you make a workplace function with that many languages on a daily basis?
2: First of all, I think we have to like make a difference between the official meetings and big conferences and events where interpretation is happening, and just you know chit chat in the workplace between colleagues. Um, that's a different thing, obviously. But even like um, you know in the corridors, it will be more than English. So people will converse in French, in Italian, whatever it may be, just on a on a personal basis. And then when it comes to the big conferences and big uh, events, of course we can make make it work with um, over twenty languages, and what interpreters use in that case is uh, what we call relay interpreting. Uh, Basically, what happens is that, for example, when there's Maltese spoken um, in the room, that the Maltese interpreters will walk from Maltese into English, and then the other booths can take it from English into French, German, Spanish, whatever it may be. Because, of course, uh, not every interpreter can master all the European languages. At the same time, that's just not possible. That was possible at the very beginning, which must have been really cool. But these days, we use really interpreting. So it takes a tiny bit longer, but it actually works very well. And we do it every day without any problems. Do you think there are some advantages
1: to this interpreting slowing down the process? That some things have to take a bit more time and that that's good when really important decisions are being made?
2: Yes, absolutely. And actually, I work in meetings sometimes where our customers really appreciate having a little bit more time available to think. So, for example, when there are discussions between authorities from the member states and um, commission services, for example, in the field of agriculture, then they will often have meetings where they still use what we call consecutive interpreting. So somebody will speak, then there's interpretation, and then it's not happening at the same time, so not simultaneously, which takes a little bit longer. But again, people appreciate it, and even if they speak both languages, They'll kind of double check whether the message got across, and then they will hear their counterpart twice as well. So they hear the message twice and will have the chance to reflect a little bit more. So it's actually something that people really appreciate, and they will even insist on us doing it that way, even if it takes a little bit longer.
0: There's quite a lot of speculation at the moment about what is going to happen to languages in the EU next year after Britain properly leaves. And I think probably in France, it's fair to say, there are quite a lot of people hoping that it might become a less Anglophone place after Brexit. (laughs) But I'm wondering if actually it's more likely to become the opposite of that and that English might feel like a more neutral language because it's most people's second language. Yes, I
2: think that is already the case, actually. I think that that has happened Maybe not a long time ago, but certainly several years ago. So the what we call the Big Bang from a linguistic point of view, I think, was the Big Bang enlargement in 2004 when a lot of new countries joined the EU. And those countries were countries that were less francophone, I guess, and where English was definitely the, the most important quote-unquote foreign language so that was a big change and a lot of my colleagues who have been around for a long time really did notice the change that occurred so i don't think that that brexit necessarily will change a lot because we still have other english native speakers like the irish for example Mm -hmm. um so they will stay and english has there was a lot of media coverage as well english has transformed into almost a language of its own. So if you want to call it Brussels English or EU English. So sometimes it can be really difficult. And you've probably experienced that for an English native speaker to follow this kind of weird and somewhat specific variety of English that we speak in the Brussels bubble.
1: (laughs) I mean, I definitely myself, having lived in the Netherlands for six years, speak a weird Dutch English now. When I go back to the UK, <laughs> my mum's like, what are you saying? Yeah. Um, so I guess I have a bit of it myself. But do you have any good examples? What What's a typically EU English phrase? One of
2: the classics is actor, I think. So for a native speaker, you'd probably think of you know drama and acting and theater and stuff like that or or films and cinema. But an actor is just somebody who does something. In a political context so i think that's one of the classics and there's actually um, a whole list of sort of expressions that are very typical for eu english or brussels english there's a whole list that was drawn up by a colleague in the european court of auditors i think i think he's a translator and has a whole list of english phrases that are misused in this eu context so he's trying to give advice to his colleagues on how to improve things but then again these, quote unquote, wrong phrases. I mean, everybody who works in the EU bubble knows what, what they mean. So if you were to turn those into, quote unquote, proper English, maybe they would have a hard time understanding that. It might be easier for the native speakers, but not necessarily for everybody else. I think that's kind of the the whole problem that we're dealing with here.
0: I think one that really confused me, and it kind of makes sense because I live in France, is that actual, does actual mean current? In Brussels English.
2: Yeah, so there's actual or eventually those those things that are used differently in an EU context than they would be used by a native speaker, I guess. It's amazing how like how it's really almost become formalized. Yeah, and it's it's difficult for interpreters as well sometimes because if you work into English For non-native speakers, sometimes you have to be really careful with, I don't know, cricket references or Shakespeare or stuff like that. Because (laughs) depending on the background of the person you're working for, they may not necessarily know what that is, what a sticky wicket is, for example, or, (laughs) you know, something from Richard II, I don't know, (laughs) or King Lear, whatever. Uh, It may not be something that they were exposed to in in school, for example.
1: What do you do if you have to translate sticky wicket into German?
2: (laughs) Well, sometimes you just rephrase it, you know, like you find yourself in a difficult situation or something like that. Of course, you okay. as an interpreter, you have to know what it means. Otherwise, you'll you'll just be, you know, blindsided. You don't know what to do. But of course, as an interpreter, you, you usually do know these things and then you have to gauge whether you can sort of bring that across or maybe turn it into a football slash soccer reference. But that's also tricky. So I've had situations, for example, where a, a colleague of mine was, I think, turning Cricket references into football references, sort of on an ongoing basis. But then it kept, it just kept coming back during the entire meeting. And he was really struggling to keep up with all these different references. So you have to be a little bit careful with these things.
0: Oh, God, that's so stressful. I've said it on this podcast before and I'll say it again. I think interpreting is the most stressful job in Europe, or one of them anyway. In 50 years' time, I mean, I hope you will be retiring, but do you think there'll still be work for? interpreters in the EU or do you think everything will just be in English as a working, a main working language? Or maybe a different single language, I don't know.
2: I think that there'll still be some of us left. I'm actually pretty sure of that because you still have a lot of communication with citizens where it's important to speak different languages. So I don't think we'll be out of a job. Although I like to say when I talk to other interpreters is that the big Influence of English is probably sort of a bigger threat for our profession than you know artificial intelligence and other technical developments. So that's something that we sh- that we're also keeping a very close eye on.
1: While we've got you here. Um- I was wondering if we could quickly talk about a pretty huge German language story that uh, hit the news last week. Uh, I'm talking about the draft bill that was presented by the Justice Ministry in Germany, containing the feminine form of plural nouns instead of the more commonly used masculine form of plural nouns. This grammatical device led to the bill being rejected by the Interior Ministry for the non-Germans here, I was wondering if you could tell us just how radical a move that was for the justice ministry to put in the feminine version of these plural nouns. To give you an English example, if you can't imagine what I'm talking about because I'm terrible at grammar, um, it would be like using actresses, a group of actresses instead of a group of actors, I believe.
2: I was really happy to see that. I don't know if it was the idea of the Minister of Justice, whether she sort of came up with the idea and told her services, you know, why don't you do this all in, you know, using the feminine uh, version of words. Obviously, sort of the standard approach in German lawmaking, I think, is that you would just use the masculine form and just assume that this would also include women. And in this particular case, I think the Ministry of the Interior said, yeah, but, you know, if you just use the feminine form, that might be against the Constitution, because, you know, that might mean that this only applies to women, which, of course, is nonsense, because if you just turn it upside down, then, of course, it's understood that it applies to everybody, which kind of shows the whole nonsense. But, um, yeah, to me, it was a very interesting initiative and and just a very good signal and a good sort of starter for a conversation. And I, I hope to see more discussion on how we can, yeah, just make the language more inclusive.
0: Thank you so much, to Alexander for coming on the podcast. He is one of our favourite Brussels people to follow on Twitter. You can follow him there at Adressel. And funnily enough, he is appearing at the European Festival of Political Rhetoric on November 18th in a debate called Do We Still Need English in Brussels? It's almost like we planned this, Dominic. Mm. <laughs> we didn't. <laughs>
1: Also, thank you to British Shell, our Patreon supporter, who asked for us to talk about this. Uh, It was a really nice idea. We hope you're happy with the result.
0: Ta-da! We'll post a link to Alex's event in the show notes.
1: Remember when you said we should get rid of this segment a few weeks ago, Katie, because isolation was over.
0: <laughs> Famous last words.
1: I did warn you. Uh, anyway, what have you been reading on your lovely holiday or watching or listening to?
0: Um, I have been listening to a very lovely audiobook to go to sleep. It is Wilding by Isabella Tree. Have you heard about this?
1: No, but great surname if you've written a book called Wilding.
0: Isn't it? It's one of those things where the name really matches the job description. It's very pleasing. Um, But yeah, Wilding is a kind of memoir of hers about this couple who were farmers in the south of England for many years. Uh, You're kind of standard intensive agriculture kind of thing. And then in 2001, they decided to set off on this really quite radical experiment and then just leave the land to go back to nature and bring all the biodiversity back. And the book is just so beautifully written by Isabella Tree. I haven't really read many writers who take such joy in nature. And the detail of nature. She goes into extraordinary detail about the effects of this decision on the plant life and the bugs and the cows. Uh, It's just lovely. And I have to say, uh, I've been really lucky to get out and see some nature over the past week. And I'm pretty bummed out to be back in concrete land and under curfew. Uh, So if you two are craving some nature... I really recommend it. Wilding by Isabella Tree. The book or the audiobook, which is very beautifully read by Isabella herself.
1: She sounds great. We should speak to her.
0: We should actually. She does talk a lot about the EU and like uh, EU farming subsidies and things. If you're into that kind of thing.
1: (laughs) Who isn't?
0: (laughs) Who isn't? Uh, What have you been reading or watching?
1: I've got back into Borgen. Yes, it's back, isn't it? Uh, No. it's not back yet they're starting filming in january but my husband had never watched it and i just thought that was ridiculous and it's actually been the perfect second lockdown viewing as a kind of calm reminder of easier times it's this danish series about uh, the first female prime minister and it's got such amazing characters and really good sexy side plots And if you want to watch any more TV, then um, you should watch Drag Race Holland. Did you know RuPaul's Drag Race has come to Holland?
0: Oh. Is there like a Dutch spin that's been put on things?
1: They all have to wear costumes that like represent Holland. So they're all in clogs and tulips and every night. Yeah. Anyway, that's only the first few episodes. And actually, it's a bit of shit. The judges are really bad and don't seem to understand how the show really works. Uh, And last week's episode was particularly terrible. But I just wanted to acknowledge it publicly that it's happening. And I'm sure some of our listeners are also diligently persevering through this crap.
0: Is is this like Emily in Paris last week where we're like, we're not recommending it. We are just acknowledging its existence.
1: Exactly. No, and actually the queens are really good. The Dutch uh, drag queens are really doing a good job. So good on them. This week's happy ending was sent to me by one of our patrons in Australia. Thanks, Justin Paul. I love it when people send me happy stories. Keep them coming. Um, it's a story reported on by one of your colleagues at AFP, in fact, Katie. Hiya. And it's the story of two Croatian nuns from two different but equally religious parts of the very Catholic country. Marita was 18 years old when she joined a convent on her home island of Kortula. Funny was a bit older when she joined joined a different convent, 23 years old, after having worked in a factory, but the two met at a training event for young nuns and flash forward to the present day about 18 years later and the two are living together as a couple, totally in love, and are the stars of a documentary about how they both overcame the obvious barriers about living as openly gay women and being nuns and all. They are no longer nuns, but they have kept their faith and they hope that their story will inspire others to follow their hearts. Marita said to your AFP colleague, Katie, that the motto of my order was Veritas, which means truth in Latin. Eventually, I decided to be honest to myself and to God who is love. I thought that was really nice. And yeah, their story's been turned into a documentary which is rather brilliantly titled None of Your Business.
0: Oh, I see what it did there.
1: Yeah, maybe coming to a screen near you sometime.
0: That's all for this week. We'll be back next week. No idea what we'll be talking about, uh, but something interesting will no doubt happen and we will be here to discuss it as always. In the meantime, you can read Dominic's tweets about veggie burgers or discs or whatever we're supposed to call them at Europeans Pod on Instagram. You can see a picture of me sitting smugly on a rock in Brittany Ugh. at Europeans Podcast, and we're on Facebook as well. If you just type in the Europeans Podcast, you'll find us.
1: If we reach a certain number of followers on Instagram, will you promise to post a picture of the poo-covered uh, certificate? <laughs>
0: <laughs> I feel like they might take our price away. It's not really a sign of respect, is it?
1: I guess not. Anyway, thanks for listening, everyone. Uh, Really nice that you're still listening. Uh, Go and tell your friends about us and have a good week and stay safe.
0: À la prochaine